Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the curious endings of all kinds of things. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And today I'm going first. I'm going to talk about a quirky little doll called the Happy to Be Me doll. And I'm talking about her because uh, of National Eating Disorder Awareness Week, which is this week, and I thought it would be kind of topical. But I also like quirky, interesting things to talk about, and I'm a weirdo that really likes dolls. So I find her interesting in the blip of time that she existed. So do you know anything about this doll, Because Emily? No, I've never heard of it before. Okay, so about 1991... The creator, Kathy Meerdig, she was talking to a group of her friends and she realized that even though her friends were either really accomplished in their careers or had a lot of stuff going on with them, they had beautiful families, they were wonderful mothers, they all felt really bad about themselves. None of them felt good about themselves and she wanted to know why. So she she was thinking about this and she went on her own personal research adventure into body image in children and eating disorders and dieting behavior and how they begin. She found that at the time, girls as young as eight and nine were on diets. Now, this is in the early 90s. It's even younger now. Mm-hmm. And she, in the 1991 New York Times article, she really talked about wanting to know why and wanting to create a doll that was a little more realistic than Barbie. So she wanted to take on Barbie with her happy-to-be-me doll. So she floated our idea around, but in... in started uh, investing her own money into creating this doll. So her company that she started is High Self-Esteem Toys Incorporated. And the mission for the doll was to help young girls develop realistic body images and accept themselves as they are. So the original doll, the only doll, was Caucasian, but she had wider feet, a shorter neck, and a larger waist. Mm. She And then Kathy Meerdig, the one who, the creator, she also invested a bunch more money into making other races and ethnicities. So I remember briefly seeing this doll. She was a bit like Barbie-esque, but definitely had a different logo and honestly she looked like a knockoff barbie to me i was probably about 12 13 so i was a little bit past my barbie playing days but i i kind of remember this doll and i think it was like in one of the dollar stores so maybe it was like a little bit after so this led me into barbie and unhealthy beauty standards did you ever play with barbies emily oh god yes yeah, I was obsessed with Barbies. And so medic, uh, an article from Medical Daily reads the proportions if Barbie was a real-life person. It, it quotes, she would physically be incapable of lifting her oversized head. Well, oh. she, Ooh. Yeah, she would look like <laughs> she's straight off a spaceship. She would stand over six feet tall, weigh 100 pounds, have a 39-inch bust, a 19-inch waist, 
and the hips of a of a prepubescent boy. Mm. And in response in 1991, the spokesperson from Mattel, Lisa German, says, the Barbie doll is not based on a real human body. Barbie was designed to be a 3D model of a fashion illustration. Therefore, her body was designed principally to look good in clothes. So she's like just from a drawing. And the original creator of Barbie actually created the Barbie on a whim based off of a prostitute doll. Ooh. Yeah, her name was Lily. And then she became a fashion doll after that and gained a lot of ground that way. But the Happy to Be Me doll would be a 36-inch bust, a 27-inch waist, and a 38-inch hip area. So maybe a little bit more realistic. So Happy came with nine outfits Instead of the 100 or so Barbie had at the time, and now Barbie has what, like millions, thousand, trillions? I don't know. Oh my gosh, so many. (laughs) So does Barbie contribute to unrealistic beauty standards? What do you think? Probably to some extent. There's been a lot of reason. There's been a little bit of research. It's kind of spotty. It's it's really contradictory. So there was a 2006 researchers in United Kingdom. They published a study of about 162 girls from the UK, age five to eight, and they showed them picture books of either Emmy, who is another doll who is more realistically portioned, or Barbie. And after the girls looked at the books, um, the researchers asked them questions about the body image. The younger girls who read the Barbie books were more dissatisfied with their bodies than the Emmy books. However, the oldest girls, seven to eight, the books didn't really affect their body image at all. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's contradictory and interesting. There was another Dutch study that found something very similar. Like the, it didn't really seem to affect their body image at all. They, they did kind of, the, the girls played with either an Emmy doll, a Lego, some Lego blocks or Barbie sized dolls. And the, the, after about 10 minutes, the researchers asked the girls about body image and the girls hadn't been affected at all. So it's contradictory and, I'm kind of remembering when I was playing with Barbie, it didn't really even cross my mind. I never wanted to look like Barbie. I didn't either. She was a doll. And I had lots of baby dolls I played with too. And I I didn't expect any of them to like spit up when I squeezed them or anything (laughs) like a real baby to like. (laughs) I had a Barbie that had rhinestone eyes and a a mullet down to her butt. Like... (laughs) This was not... Are you sure you didn't want to look like that? I did not. Her eyes were terrifying. It was my favorite Barbie, and I think it was because she was the scariest looking one. (laughs) That totally sounds like you. (laughs) (laughs) She looked like a monster, and so... (laughs) No, that's my association with Barbies. I mean, kind of looking weird, but not... I've never wanted to look like Barbie, but I'm not saying it didn't impact my impressions of the way people look or should look. Absolutely. And there was a dearth of of 
ethnic Barbies. Oh my um, God! Into yes, the eighties. Yeah, into the eighties and nineties. I mean, there was Keiko. I remember Keiko, and she was one of Barbie's friends, and she was Hawaiian Islander. She was supposed to be, and I mean, that's really all I kind of remember. And and Barbie had like kind of a cast of friends off to the side that looked a little bit different, but all of them were were definitely you know, in the range of beauty standard, beauty, beautiful. But at the same time, I don't remember ever wanting to look like Barbie. But I am also not African American or Native American or brown in any sense of the term. So just I, I can't imagine what that was like not having a doll that represents you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I never wanted to look like Barbie. I wanted all her clothes and I wanted her car. That's for sure. I wanted a Barbie <laughs> uh, power wheel real bad. Oh, yeah. But no. <laughs> so there's been a lot of dolls that have taken on Barbie. And there's been a lot of talk about making Barbie more realistic. Happy to be me was one blip on the market in the early 90s there wasn't really anything as far as happy to be me I don't know where she went she just kind of existed and then went away you can find her on eBay now she's about ten dollars unopened but that's about all I can find but if you look at other like people that have taken on Barbie or have made dolls and comment to Barbie there's a lot of them out there and they're really interesting but Barbie still exists and she's still the popular doll so did happy to be me you know make a difference maybe in 2016 Mattel actually introduced a new line of Barbies with more realistic proportions including curvy ones and I have my air quotes out curvy ones they were really popular and it seemed like they were mostly popular with parents mm -hmm. and they were often sold out I actually wanted one of the curvy ones I thought she was adorable but I could never find her and so maybe happy made a little bit of a difference and push Mattel into this area of trying to make it make more realistic Barbies I don't know, but she's not around anymore. You can buy her off of eBay. And that's where she went. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm looking at this doll and it it looks like, because I haven't seen it before, but it looks like the Barbie, how Barbies look now, because my daughter has a few. And they are obviously different from the ones we grew up with. Like they're, yes. they have, they have flat feet. They don't have pointed toes anymore. But yeah, it's, it's that's still really interesting. It's still a slim white woman in a bathing suit with the frostiest pink lipstick you've ever seen in your life. Oh, sweet. <laughs> so I, I kind of, I understand where it's coming from, but I've always kind of wondered if hating on Barbie was also, there's a, there's misogyny in that too. Probably. Like, hate, hating on Barbie because she's, you know, she's had all these crazy careers. She has all these clothes and these cars and these friends and these houses and picnic areas and all this stuff. I've always kind of wondered if that's a little bit of misogyny placed on the doll as well. I don't know. But I do know that I'm glad that she's really now more representative of people, of real people. 
even if she's still a doll, there's still a wider range of skin tones and suggestions of body types because I feel like everybody deserves to have a representation of them somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And Barbie has definitely changed. Like when we were girls, like you said, um, I'm a little bit older than you, but I definitely remember she was like very, 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 like her waist was extremely tiny. Like she was just built like a drawing. Yeah. And I always, I always thought of her as kind of, like I said, weird looking. She, she looks kind of monstrous. I don't think of like, oh, I wish I looked like Barbie. I, well, yeah, I, I never, th- I never thought that either. We're slightly different ages. And when I was a tween teen, what was particularly popular was being as skinny as possible with the flattest stomach you could have with the lowest rise jeans on the planet. Mm-hmm. And Barbie didn't look like that. No. So what was sort of deified in media it didn't really match barbie very well when i was playing with barbies and i i know i responded much more to what was portrayed as a desirable woman in print and in television and in film oh yeah there's there's a lot of research that um has found that when young women like uh from 10 on the actual media images affect their body image a lot more than it seems like Barbie ever was found to. Mm -hmm. So it seems like media images and just being inundated with those images has a lot more meaning to people than just a doll that you play with. And plus I think you're smaller when you play with dolls, you're a younger age. And I, I, I know that, I was keenly aware of my body, but I never kind of equated the two. She was a toy. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be more like my Felicity American Girl doll. Yeah, American Girls are a big thing. So they weren't like a huge thing. I think there was only Samantha. And I was kind of aging out of the American Girl. But I definitely, you know, I had the book about Samantha. She was one of the first ones. And then I kind of aged out. And now there are so many American Girls. There was originally only three when it came out when I was younger. Right. I was reading about them and and enjoying them as a phenomenon when they had just added Addie when I got interested in them, who was the black American girl doll. And then they Mm -hmm. added Josefina, who is Mexican-American. Oh, I had no idea. That's cool. And then I kind of lost interest. But it was an interesting time in that I was of an age that I was not thinking like, oh, I need to read a story about a black girl. I just read all the stories. So it was sort of a nice introduction of like, this is an American girl, just like all my other American girls. It wasn't colorblind. Like they, there was very clear that they were experiencing racism. It was an American story in that respect, but it wasn't like, here's this special forced diversity. It was just sort of, it was a normal thing to tell their stories. Oh, good. So they didn't whitewash it. Like, oh, no, Addie's happy, even though she lives at a time extremely racist. Yeah. No, she was an enslaved person and was force-fed tobacco worms in the first book. Like, it was brutal. Wow. And I think it's important to tell brutal stories, even to children, because children go through brutal things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
It was not uh, playing around the, the, the people that wrote those books. And I think I really like Samantha because I've always wanted to be ridiculously wealthy. <laughs> Which is she funny. because supposed she... to be rich. <laughs> oh, super rich. Yeah. Uh, but she was also, I think, the least happy. You think so? Yeah. That was I, my impression. I read the Kirsten ones. I read the Kirsten ones and... Like I read a, I think there was only one Kirsten book because I really liked like the wreath around her head. I thought that was cool. And then I aged out like I, Samantha and Kirsten, I like them, but that was it. I thought Kirsten's story was really important because it was. Pioneer, right? They were immigrant pioneer. So she was Swedish and it was important also because uh, it discussed things like public health and cholera outbreaks and like her life was hard yeah definitely I want to say her brother died spoiler alert for this 30 plus year old book but I want to say somebody somebody in her family died and then Kirsten there was a lot of loss of focus on her and she was actually I think retired as an American Girl doll oh really Mm -hmm. we should do where did the American Girl dolls go yeah I think that would be interesting that would be really interesting it would be a good episode I was really heavily into Barbie. I loved her. Um, like, so I, it's always interesting to me to like kind of pick up and see where Barbie is right now. Oh, definitely. And I've, I've made crafts out of like Barbie heads and stuff. I, I find Barbie fascinating and the story of Barbie fascinating. So the happy to be me doll was definitely an interesting blip in the universe and the market for me. But she never really got a whole lot of traction no surprise so I had an aerial Barbie doll too because I was obsessed with the little mermaid and I remember her being built more realistically she was a lot stockier than Barbie she wasn't stocky she was you know slim white girl but she wasn't built like she was in the movie and in the movie, she was built like a Barbie. Like, her proportions are insane. They don't make yeah, any she's sense. Like, anime cartoon proportions. I mean, I guess if you grow up in an aquatic environment, your skeleton might develop differently. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you took it, like, into reality. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you, if you develop in the ocean. <laughs> but... I, I remember being struck by that difference, but I yeah. still played with my Ariel Barbie. I love that she had bright red hair. It was great. <laughs> so I was obsessed with Ursula from The Little Mermaid, and I'm a little bit older than you. Mm-hmm. So I loved Ursula. I thought she was a badass, and I'm sad that they never made a doll of her. I want an Ursula I- movie. I want her backstory. I want her doll. I want Ursula information. Yes, me too. And I am a large enough woman that I always consider being Ursula for Halloween. Like, I could totally pull it off. It would you would be do so such a good job as Ursula. Like, I will help I you know. make an Ursula costume if you'd like. <laughs> yes, it needs to happen. Like an Ursula skirt. Um, yeah, a friend of mine, she actually did that. She used trash bags and it turned out really well. Yeah, it looked really good. 
Barbie tangent. Anyway, um, I have a lot of I have a lot of good uh, sources for this article, especially uh, about National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And if you need help uh, or information about eating disorders, uh, you can go to nationaleatingdisorders.org and they have a hotline. So by all means, please do visit it uh, if you need help for you or for a friend or just want more information. Most definitely. Yes. And now I'm going to take a a hard left turn. I love that we do that. I think it's awesome. And talk about where Attuck the movie went. And film storage and United Artists. I think I've seen this movie. Is it about a barbarian? You have not seen this movie. Okay. Uh, And I'll explain why. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But there may be similar movies or similarly titled movies. So Atuk, or Atuk, I'm not sure which it is. Atuk the movie is based on the book The Incomparable Atuk, or Stick Your Neck Out, a novel by Mordecai Rickler. The novel is about an elder Inuit who moves to Toronto and his reactions to and adaptations to city life. It's sort of a fish-out-of-water story. And Norman Jewison, who helped set up CBC and has had like a massive creative life, really wanted to see that novel adapted to film. And the movie screenplay was adjusted slightly so that Atuk was going to New York City instead of Toronto. And Norman Jewison had Tom Carroll write the screenplay. They started writing, he bought the film rights in 1979 and they started looking for actors in 1982. So between 79 and 82, they had written most of a screenplay, if not all of it. So where did this idea go of this fish out of water story of an Inuit almost certainly called at the time Eskimo uh, elder going to New York City. It is now in development hell and development hell is where uh, films gotten to a certain point in terms of production and probably a fair amount of money has been spent on it and it is either unfinished or it's finished and unreleased. Why is this movie particularly in development hell? There are a lot of dead actors in the wake of the attempted creation of this movie. Oh, wow. Uh, So actors who were slated to be the lead in the movie who have died will go in order. John Belushi. He was offered the lead role in 1982. And a few months later, he died of a drug overdose during negotiations to play the role. Okay, not entirely remarkable. John Belushi's drug use was well known and long, long term, and it was, I believe, cocaine. So it was not, you know, he wasn't just smoking weed sometimes or anything like that. He was using heavy drugs. So Norman Jewison and Tom Carroll really believed in this story. They wanted to see if they could get it going again. And Sam Kinison, who is a very famous comedian, his work is not my flavor of comedy, but hey, everybody, you know, every takes all kinds to make a world. So was he the one who screamed at everyone? Like he screamed? Yes. Like shrieking, okay. screaming. Yeah. He was kind of like a, a little banshee man. Yes. That's a good description. Especially with his hair was very long and frizzy and like just sort of exploded out from under a hat. That was how he mm-hmm. t- typically presented himself. Mm-hmm. So Sam Kinison was actually cast as Atuk in 1986, and some scenes were filmed, uh, but production was 
halted by legal disagreements between Kinison and United Artists. Kinison wanted more control over the script. United Artists didn't want him to have as much control. It was it was typical legal wrangling, but it took a long time to get it ironed out. And just after filming had resumed in 1992, which is six years after Kinison was cast, he died from being hit by a drunk driver. And he oh, died, no. but his, I forget if it was his girlfriend or his wife, who was also in the car, had a mild concussion, and that was it. Not that that's nothing, but when the other person dies, it's striking when there's significantly less of a series of injuries. Yeah. Michael O'Donohue was a writer for Saturday Night Live, and he did some acting, but he was mostly a writer. He also wrote certain screenplays and things. He was friends with John Belushi and Sam Kinison, and he had read the script, and he may have actually recommended it to one or both of them. And he died in 1994 of a cerebral hemorrhage. It's all his fault. The curse of Attuck. Yeah. And then John Candy in 1994 was offered the role and began reviewing the script and he died in a, of a heart attack within a few months of no. being offered the role and reviewing the script. And then Chris Farley was offered the script and he was, no. he was super excited to have the opportunity to play a role that John Belushi had also formerly been attached to because John Belushi was Chris Farley's sort of comedic hero in a lot of ways. And a few months after receiving the script, he died of a drug overdose, the same drug and same death method of death that John Belushi had which was tragic for a lot of reasons for both of them and then Phil Hartman was introduced to the script by Chris Farley and five months after Chris Farley died Phil Hartman was murdered by his wife so that is a striking number of deceased people involved in reading the script or being attached to play the lead character and Tom Carroll who's the writer of the screenplay contends that there's just a lot of coincidences and I mean yeah probably but it's a striking number of very oddly timed deaths in comparison to being handed this script so where is, where is all the, if there's any film left of Sam Kinison and where's the script? We don't really know where the script is. It's probably hanging around in MGM somewhere because United Artists was eventually bought by MGM, but it went through a lot of different permutations between then and today. And then where's the film? So if it still exists, if it wasn't destroyed, it is most likely underground in Kansas. In Kansas. Uh, in Kansas. There are massive, there's a company, at least one company called Underground Vaults and Storage, and there may be other companies that own an underground salt deposit and a limestone vault, and they're both used to store film. They are Fascinating. easier to, It's a consistent temperature, easier to climate control, few biological hazards. And if you'll harken back to our lost film episode, a lot of times film would just spontaneously combust. And if you're underground in a salt deposit or a limestone vault, you're not, there's not much to burn. And so it's a way to store film that is safer for people who are around the film, safer for the film. 
it's easier to monitor for things like it's called vinegar syndrome where uh, nitrocellulose film just sort of dissolves into like goo. That's where it most likely is. And I'll read a little blip about film preservation and why it, it hasn't just been digitized. So this is from Wikipedia, but it's a quote. Film preservationists would prefer that the film images, whether restored through photochemical or digital processes, be eventually transferred to other film stock because no digital media exists that has been proven to truly that is proven truly archival because of rapidly evolving and shifting data formats, while a well-developed and stored modern film print can last upwards of 100 years. So, if there is any film left of Atuk the movie and Sam Kinison playing Atuk, it's in Kansas. <laughs> I just have to say, Atuk people, don't you come for Danny DeVito. I'm warning you. Oh my gosh. You, you can't have him. <laughs> Do not kill Danny DeVito. Yeah, please. Let him make his limoncello and be Danny DeVito. Right? Have you tried his limoncello? I haven't. I like limoncello. No, I love limoncello. It's or is so it Lemoncello? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's one or it the other. It probably does, but it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> yeah, neither <laughs> of us are selling it, so I guess that's not particularly no. important. So have you had a lemon drop? I don't know that I have. Okay, so if you like Limoncello, you'd probably like a lemon drop. It's a drink. Um, I believe that there is bourbon and Limoncello, and I think there's a little bit of uh, lemon juice in it. And then you rim that glass with sugar. Mm -hmm. Oh, dear God, it is so good. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, it's my favorite cocktail. Oh, man. Now anyway. I just want to drink a cocktail at 11 in the morning <laughs> on a Friday. When I Why probably not? have to go pick my kid up at daycare. <laughs> well, pick her up and go home and teach her how to make cocktails. You can be like, <laughs> she make like mommy a cocktail. I'm not going to make cocktails with my kids. Oh, <laughs> not until she is 21. And then so I'll... our audience hears why Emily is a mother and Sarah is not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can make mocktails with your kids. I mean, S Sandra Lee does that. She always whenever she has cocktail hour, she has cocktails and then she makes kitty cocktails or mocktails. And they, I mean, a lot of times they look pretty delicious. So mm -hmm. I believe it. I like mocktails a lot as well. I have a huge sweet tooth, so... Oh, me too. No surprise. A lot of mocktails are very sweet. So, they're in Kansas. Most likely. If they haven't been destroyed. It's... it. I could totally understand if they just threw it out, especially after Sam Kinison died, because... And not just like, oh, Sam Kinison deserves to be thrown away, but it's the type of thing where, what are we going to do with this? We can't use it. We are not archivists. We could send it to the Library of Congress. They probably don't want it, so just throw it away. And the film is apparently cursed. I mean, just saying. Well, and I mean, think about it. So Sam Kinison, John Belushi, John Candy, Chris Farley. None of these men are anything other than chunky white dudes. And playing an Inuit elder. And they were young, chunky white dudes. Playing an Inuit elder. So that's part of why I'm not inclined to write off a curse as not possible because it's kind of cursed behavior. <laughs> <laughs> Colonialist to say the least. Yes. 
So why not? I mean, sh- I'm sure there's plenty of Inuit people who would enjoy being in a film. Yes, there probably are. Huh. Right. But I wouldn't want to be a part of it after all that death, though. Like, I totally get it. I'm no, still pissed I... they killed John Candy. <laughs> I kind of hope they just shred the script and call it good. <laughs> it's so sad, though. It is sad. Was it actually, like, I, I don't remember if you said this, but was the film actually uh, written by an Inuit person or no? It was just written. I did not look into whether Tom Carroll is Inuit, but I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an Australian surfer named Tom Carroll. Oh. There are a lot of guys named Tom Carroll. This would take some time. I don't well, Carol, think he's indigenous Carol is a to anywhere. English name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. I mean, so yeah. <laughs> if, you have, if you have any comments or questions or just want to tell us cool stuff, you can you can email us at where does it podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter or Instagram. Yeah. Have a great day. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>